Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Middle American. I'm your host, Brian Roger. We are continuing our series of interviewing candidates as we lead up to primary day, which is March 5th here in North Carolina, Super Tuesday across the nation. Early voting is going on through March 2nd, so you may be voting today or tomorrow if you're interested, but otherwise be sure to vote by March 5th. So in continuation of this series, I am interviewing a House candidate, U.S. House candidate today, Gene Douglas, who is running for the Republican uh, candidate position for the U.S. House District 2 here in North Carolina. Gene, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. So, Gene, explain to the, we, we've talked to a lot of different candidates so far on this podcast, and they're all running in different districts. What does your district cover, District 2? Well, uh, it, it, it's most of Wake County, and basically it goes from Apex, Cary, up around the center of Raleigh, at, inside 440, essentially, and a little bit above, to up to Wake Forest, and then over to Zebulon, and then back down to Garner, et cetera, and then across the bottom, cutting off somewhere between 13 and 4 also. So so basically, it is very compact, thankfully, because when I ran first in Hawaii, it was the whole state, and uh, and my wife running in the state of District 2 in Hawaii was all the islands. Well, we had fun going around Hawaii, but the point is, um, it's relatively compact, which is relatively easy for me to go. So, you're, you're definitely not island hopping here. No, if you're all, but it was fun there. So, Well, that, that's interesting. Tell me a little bit about your background. Sounds like you've got some political experience in terms of running in a campaign before. What, what has brought you to running in this campaign? Let, let, let listeners in a little bit in terms of your bio. Well, uh, uh, basically, uh, I grew up in a very liberal, politically activated Quaker family in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. Both my parents went to Swarthmore College. Um, they liked looking down at the IVs as beneath them. And, uh, and, and I have uncles that went to Penn and other things like that. But how dare them go to Penn and Wharton, which might help understand the Ivy's antagonism with Trump because he went to Penn Wharton. Uh, because that when I was growing up, Penn Wharton was the only Ivy League uh, sanctioned for sanity in the Ivy's at the time. And this was 60s and 70s, even though I liked visiting Penn for a lot of reasons. And my, uh, my uncle was the chairman of the chemistry department at Penn and so on. And I thought it was cool that he blew a couple fingers off by playing with fireworks when he was a kid. So, so, so in some respects, it's like I, I, I enjoyed playing with fire, but my parents thought I was crazy, but I enjoyed playing with fire because I was a chemist. It was fascinating. Uh, but uh, again, uh, I grew up in a very political family and the liberal Quakers are annoyingly political. They make it into everything. It's like a game for them, but it's a way that they can kind of do rhetorical um, flourishes around everybody, making them look stupid, when in reality it's a lot of pompous ass posturing. And so it's the kind of thing where in a way I grew up kind of po poking holes in it, and then I became a Christian in 1973, so that sort of changed my attitude, my heart did, et cetera. And so then uh, I was politically active and then went off to the King's College, which is a Christian college at Barcliffe Manor, New York. Um, I had read the American Spectator and National Review those years because I, someone, I found, found a copy of the American Spectator on the train going into Philadelphia and somebody, another guy I met on there recommended National Review and picked that up. And 
So basically, I, I got my bachelor's in chemistry and math, minor in physics, then went on to grad school at uh, North Dakota State in polymers and coatings, and uh, that's an area of pink chemistry, such, and then went to UConn, and uh, my grandfather had gone to Yale, and my grandmother went to Wellesley, and so I was very happy to be at UConn because that was the same part of the same part of the educational system in uh, in um, old Connecticut, and I got my master's in polymer science from UConn, and at the time I was very politically active too, paid attention, and I appreciated uh, Senator Gordon uh, Humphrey as well as Bob Smith, who were in New Hampshire because Weicker was not impressive. He's just a Republican version of the jerks I, I knew. And uh, and so basically, uh, there, was a, there was a black Republican who was a senator for, um, for Massachusetts, so I appreciate it. But, um, so I got politically astute then. And, uh, and so I was paying attention, and I was a Reagan supporter. And such when he came, I understood why all the liberals were angry at him because he was former head of the Screen Actors Guild Union, went from a very liberal Democrat to a Republican, saw through the nonsense, poked holes in it, such like that. And so I was politically aware. And uh, what really got me involved was the fact that I was working as a chemist at A.E. Stanley Manufacturing Company, which has a history of making cornstarch and corn syrup, Stanley syrup, some of your listeners might have heard of at the time. But... The, the classic corn syrup that's used for cooking, the, the normal corn syrup, such like that. And so I was involved in the taste testing for high fructose corn syrup in 1985 that they were using to try and replace sugar with high fructose corn syrup and Coke, Pepsi, General Foods stuff, and such like that. So I was taste testing to see if it was a good substitute. So you're, you're a chemist by trade. You're taste testing. When did you get the taste to actually run well, the political offer. Well, when was that first? Well, you said, I'm throwing my hat in the ring. Well, that's is related to this because they started a political action committee at Staley where Senator Daniel Noy, who was the Senate Intelligence Committee, who was the senior senator from Hawaii, came to speak to them and said he was how glad he was to help ADM and Staley get federal price supports for uh, ethanol and gasoline billions of dollars of subsidies for ethanol and gasoline. And and he was very grateful to him Staley to keep the price high on sugar because that helped Hawaii sugar farmers. And I remember saying to a buddy next to me and said, that makes no sense because I was involved in taste testing high fructose corn syrup. And if you're going to make ethanol directly from the corn, it's going to cheapen the price of high fructose corn syrup even more. Because they're essentially paying for uh, billions of dollars, which, which essentially used to be from the trash mash. It used to be moonshine that would be made with the residue, not with corn directly. But they decided to use the environmentalist gimmick to do, and this is very political. This is going back to the 80s, where they said that gasoline, got to get rid of the lead, so put in something that will increase octane. I was a chemist, I just did that. And ethanol does it, but it decreases the efficiency of uh, of burning gasoline and things because it's partially oxidized. Well, I, as a chemist, understood that. Well, he was very, being very political, saying that he gratefully loves the and said, I said, this doesn't make any sense. 
But then this is 1985, and he got into a rant about how Reagan should be impeached. He was the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Reagan should be impeached because he was not informing Congress what he was doing, because Reagan was using going around the War Powers Act because the Soviet Union was actively bringing arms and munitions into Managua, Nicaragua, to support the communist government in Nicaragua, using their ships, using the Soviet Union was using their ships, bringing it in, and the CIA, he asked the CIA to mine the harbors of Managua to stop that from happening, instead of starting a war with the Soviet Union. So he did that very simply. And so Daniel Lloyd was saying, no, he wasn't informing Congress what he was doing. How dare him? He should be impeached. We should remove President Reagan from this and such like that. And this is before the Ollie North stuff came out later on. Okay. And uh, the week before he had visited, I read the National Review where it described the CIA report that was confidential, that was written up, presented that the rationale for mining harbors in Nanawa. I read the article that was in the National Review when it was a good magazine. Now it's garbage. Uh, but the point is uh, that basically I I raised my hand and said, Senator Noy, what about the report that the CIA gave to your committee last week about why they're mining the harbors in Managua, Nicaragua? And he said, I didn't read it. And a whole bunch of people in the audience laughed, and uh, I did too. And then I found out later he tried to get me fired because I embarrassed him from a bunch of chemists. No. Okay. So and I was a new guy and basically embarrassed him because essentially blew his whole argument out of the water and such like that. So uh so I thought that was very funny. I wasn't threatened at all about and I didn't lose my job. It, it, it lingered away because I was part of an adventure group that dissolved because the product that I was working in didn't didn't have any value. Uh they found it didn't quite work with what they were hoping for. But that was my job to figure out uses. But Again, that that was the history of that, where Senator Daniel Noy tried to get me fired because I spoke the truth to him and said this. It's not so you had your you had your first public experience there of dealing with a politician and, and kind of the debate back and forth. You had mentioned Hawaii and running it. Well, well, you mentioned yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Sure. Well, then I went. To, then my jobs fizzled out. I went to seminary because I needed to get. In my management of evaluations, it came clear that I spoke at too high educational level above everybody's head. I needed to learn how to speak and write better to for normal lay people. And so I decided, well, I should go to seminary because I went to a Christian college and then see God, what God would let me do with that. And he kind of indicated I should do it in three years. I did it in three years. And then I started teaching chemistry, which God essentially used that trade. So I couldn't teach chemistry to college students. I started, we wanted to honor a bit. I thought I was trying to get back in industry again, but it didn't work. And so I got a teaching job in Florida and then basically started teaching community colleges, Florida. Then we went out to Micronesia where I was uh, in at the college of Micronesia in 1990, starting in 1995 through seven, two years. And at the time, I, I was a dull supporter, and we kind of had an event for him there to try and raise some money for his campaign in 96 and such like that, because I liked to kind of dilly-dally in that. I was paying attention, and uh, I liked his background, even though he was from corn country in Kansas. Uh, so that was kind of weird. But uh, but 
And we had over for spaghetti dinner, uh, Senator John McCain's wife, Cindy, and one of their sons. And it was a nice visit and everything else. I thought, oh, this is cool. Another kind of touch with another senator. And I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. But then after my contract ended in 97, we went to university. Uh, we went to Hilo Hawaii. So my wife could continue her bachelor's degree in art. She got her bachelor's degree in art and because uh, she got her AA when we were out there uh, in Micronesia. And then I found out Senator Noy was running for re-election. And in the 13 years between, no, 12 years between 1985, where I made fun of him, and he's, he said how glad he was that ADM and Stanley were keeping the price support sign on sugar, the Hawaii sugar industry was destroyed because Coke, Pepsi, General Foods, all the different things that replaced sugar with high fructose corn syrup. Because essentially it was enormously cheap because of billions of dollars of government subsidies on grain alcohol comes from the same raw material and essentially essentially it destroyed the Hawaii sugar industry and I realized well I gotta go talk to the Hawaii GOP and because I found out he was running for re-election and said can I have your support to at least do that they said no we don't support people in the primary which is a typical thing and I said fine well I'll just go after him whatever else and I had a fun pointing out the prop thing that Senator Doyle was behind the destruction of the Hawaii industry. It got a lot of people noticed. I came in third out of nine in the primary because they put two Democrats in so that I wouldn't win. And uh, basically, I decided that I was going to run for U.S. Senate to replace him because he tried to get me fired, so I might as well try to get him fired. So, on real issues, not just because I disagreed with him. Sure. But basically, this is the nature of destructive nature of democratic politics. There's all sorts of things that say it was just essentially destroy jobs for working people. They don't care about the working people. They just care about money and power and such like that. And I had an interesting chat with Senator McConnell at the time. He said, Gene, I really appreciate what you're doing because millions of dollars are coming to Hawaii to protect his seat that won't be available for Senate seats. And because he was head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. And as I said, sure, that's fine. You know, I don't think I'm, I'm going to win. I'm just going to kind of blame him for the destruction of my sugar industry. And so uh, because Linda Lingle was running for governor, we decided to put my wife in to run for U.S. House District 2 in Hawaii. So the coincidence of North Carolina 2 here. Right on with that. And we had sure number two. And so basically, we, and she won the primary. And I came in third out of the nine, and so after the primary was over, we just continued to see how she could do, but she got over a third of the vote against pro-abort Patsy Mink, who is a much older version of the uh, of feminazi Deborah Ross, essentially, who who been a planned baronet supporter for decades, and she was an older version who even set up the Hawaii tourist industry. To get it to get abortions in the sixties when it was illegal in the mainland. Well, you mentioned District Two, you mentioned Deborah Ross, who's the Democrat that is in District Two, that it would be right. would be running against if you get out of the primary. What made you decide, you know what, it's time to run. It's time to hold my name in the hat in District Two in North Carolina and run against Deborah. Well, uh, well, because my wife ran, ran the primary and won, and I ran in 2002 against the Republican 
incumbent Charlie Bass in New Hampshire, who basically wouldn't go, who wouldn't vote with Republicans during the Bush administration, even though he's a Republican, who wouldn't even support the partial birth abortion ban that both President Clinton and President Bush wanted, then basically I should go against him. And I had a good time helping him win the general because I was the lackey conservative alternative and he was the moderate, which is fine. But I, I, I did that also in, in New Hampshire when we were there. Um, but but the thing is, in July 7th, my wife passed away, went to be with the Lord, and then I saw the movie Sound of Freedom, and there was a Joe Gaviesel, who was the guy on Person of Interest, the actor, made a challenge to the audience to do something to to help stop child trafficking, such like that. And this is all connected, and I... I realized that there was something I could do because when, when I came to North Carolina to teach chemistry at UNC Pembroke in 2005, so I'd been in the state for a long time. I retired and moved up here to be near my son and his family awake, and I planned to be involved in the Republican Party just as a person. Um, then I realized with my background, I should do it again and go after Senator Ross's, Representative Ross's seat. For obvious reasons, so so that's why I decided to get in the race. And at the time, I was the only one that declared. That I was the only one that declared, and then a couple others. One other person came in, and then kind of like this swear at me and call me racist, and then went to thirteen thing, and then and then uh, and then another guy came in, um, and and then Alvin Swain came in two days before the end of the deadline. And he ran in 2020, so he has his own set of credentials of being over 30 years in the military, which is just fine with me. Sure. But I told him that, look, if I knew you were going to run in July, I wouldn't have got involved. Yeah. Because I was happy to have anybody who was relevant enough to go on him. But uh, they're both involved now. Well, yeah, but it was two days before the end of the fight period, and I was committed, and I wasn't going to give up. And so I said, now, and I, I like the guy. I think his service in the country has been fabulous. And I said to him, look, I said, well, now you're going to have to beat me. Uh, and he, he kind of laughed. So that's fine. But yeah. but I, I do it as this, see it as a thing about experienced people from two different angles. And it's up to the people of Wake County, this District 2, to decide who they want to represent them in Congress. Well, let's get, let's get into that a little bit. First and foremost, tell people... Uh, and we'll do this at the end as well, but tell people from the outset where they can find you online. What is what is your website? Well, I have a, I have a website that, that I set up years ago. I've had websites for my campaigns before with gdouglas.org and Gene Douglas for Congress 2000, et cetera. I've got a history on there. But I set up a substack a couple of years ago for just educational purposes because I wanted to see where it would go regarding because I was a retired chemistry teacher, wanted to continue to educate people. And the politics then got a little bit more interesting because I had, uh, Dan Bishop was my congressman down in, in Robeson County, as well as uh, Hudson and now Roger. And so it's a situation where I was paying attention. And so in a way, I, I, I was more interested legally. You're a lawyer. Legally, I was interested in the Durham investigation and all the stuff about the impeachments and everything else because Senator Noy was ranting about how Reagan should be impeached. 
I don't know whether a lot of your audience realizes, but they've tried to impeach every every Republican, every Republican since Richard Nixon, uh, the Democrats. So this is not new going after Trump for nonsense reasons. They wanted to do that with Reagan. They wanted to do that, obviously, with Nixon, but Nixon fed fed the enemies. Um, but but again, the point is uh, that I, I I realized that that I had to get in there and then do what I could, then see where I could go with. So I've got your site. Is that pleasure? It's G, the letter G, not G. The letter G. Letter G. Douglas, D O U G L A S S dot U S. And it's a Substack. I set it up years ago with other stuff. And uh, it's free. People can welcome to subscribe if they want, but but it's a public service and it's the kind of thing where in a way it, it was just something I could keep busy and do. So I converted that to my thing and and I decided to use the mailing list that I got from the Wake GOP to kind of put it on there so they could opt out. And so I've got a lot of faithful Wake GOP people reading my posts and such like that. Like I put out podcasts and other things that may have interest, like even SCOTUS oral arguments which I enjoy listening to now and then, particularly the one versus Trump versus Colorado. Oh, oh the, the wacky leftists argue in that case. It's like all, all nine of the SCOTUS states ripped them apart. But in any case, uh, you have to be interested to listen to that. But it's only an hour, so if, if any of the audience wants to be entertained, you know. Well, let's get let's get into some of the substance. You're running for a congressional seat, so this isn't local politics. This is national politics. Because it does have some elements, but I've been here enough in North Carolina to know how it does affect North Carolina. Exactly, and they say all politics is local, but for the office itself, you're not going to be in Raleigh. You'd be in Washington D.C., right? So let's talk about some topics first and foremost. What I think is the number one issue heading into politics no matter if you're running in North Carolina, whether you're running in Michigan, California, whatever it is, the economy, right? I think that's on everybody's mind going into November in terms of uh, the economy itself and, and where we're at from inflation and from the ability to afford groceries and the ability to pay your mortgage and the ability to buy a house. What if What is the number one issue for you as it relates to the economy? What do you see as the biggest issue in terms of the Well, it goes back all the way back to Ronald Reagan's thing of saying government is not the solution, it's the problem. And the U.S. Constitution makes it very clear that the function of the federal government is to regulate interstate commerce and to protect this against from enemies external and internal. That means having a police force to manage the laws to protect innocent Americans uh, locally and state state and nationally wide. And the infrastructure means, yes, the interstate highway system and the system between commerce between states to regulate that properly. But because it's gotten so huge, the bureaucracy has gotten so huge, getting involved in businesses and other stuff like that, micromanaging, duplicating functions that already happen at the state level, there was an enormous amount of duplicated things. So basically the state is required to hire people to manage all the paperwork at the state level. Then they got to modify it slightly and send it up to the feds. And then maybe they'll get enough money to fulfill the things from the feds to pay the, the overhead costs at the state level. But usually that doesn't happen. So they have to raise local taxes, et cetera. 
And my job, if I go to the, get to the last house, is to help the Republican caucus and hopefully President Trump to dismantle the big state and essentially get rid of the Department of Education, get rid of the part of the FBI that goes after innocent Americans for, for expressing different points of view, go after the, the deep state, the, um, the State Department and CIA that go after Americans for expressing different points of view and, or not the accepted one, et cetera. And, and because basically it's all infested with leftists who essentially want to push their own agenda and criminalize the statement of opinion that's different from theirs. So it's the kind of thing where that all is bloated bureaucracy that should be at home doing other things more productive instead of spending taxpayers' money. And we've got $34 trillion of federal debt. I remember when it was $9 trillion. I'm six, almost 67, or less than that. And the President Reagan wanted a real balanced budget amendment. The Republicans have been pushing for a balanced budget amendment to try, but the Democrats, when they get power or when they have filibuster power, essentially pushing to spend more and more money of the taxpayers' money while promising them everything. And there was an interesting debate I had with Deborah Ross a few weeks ago where Democrat activists were asking her questions that were loaded. And I said, well, I said, well, you got a money tree, you got a money tree in Washington. And I, the, one of the questions was asked is, is what will you do to help bring funds to help, uh, to help, um, you know, the people who are, Newly given birth, a dodo, one year because infant mortality and such like that has gone on. You know the expenses for new mothers and everything. What what do you do to bring money home to do that? And I said, well, that's a that's a local responsibility. It doesn't it does the community no good to send money to Washington D.C. and then have it laundered through Washington D.C. and then come back here. What all it does is support the bureaucracy there. And and then I f- said, I find it very interesting. You're so concerned about these new mothers and their babies, but you're totally concerned about the millions of babies that are aborted before they're even born, killed before they're even born. And they weren't prepared for that kind of answer. But it all comes down to that graphic, that graphic things. Is a lot of the social programs essentially are designed to replace parents. They're designed to make fathers particularly feel unimportant um, so that they don't have to provide for their families and they don't really have a real reason to to excel and get a better job or to learn to do a job and such like that because their girlfriend and kids will be supported or whatever else. You've got local churches, liberals uh, of all sorts of churches that, that want to say, oh, it's okay to behave badly. If, at least if you love the person behaving badly and jumping from partner to partner. And and if you get pregnant, you can kill it because it really doesn't matter. It's just fetal. It's just tissue and such like that. And then they wonder why there's a lot of mental illness. And then they, and, and you have the Democrats saying that they want, they, they, they want to bring money from Washington to help mental illness treatment, which sounds good. But in reality, yeah, you're going to have a lot of mentally ill women who, who get that way because they boarded their kids. So one of the federal bureaucracies, we're 45 days or so out from this being on everybody's yep. radar, but 
one of the federal bureaucracies that I think all sides complain about from time to time in the IRS. And so would you be in favor of changing, you talk about red tape and a lot of policies, the IRS has a lot of it. Would you be in favor of simplifying the tax code for economic purposes and making it easier for Americans to pay taxes? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. And how would you simplify it? Yes, of course, because that's all regulations. It's like a, the tax code is huge, and it's set up to be huge to essentially support and provide money for tax lawyers to find loopholes to avoid paying any taxes. And I, I, I happen to like Steve Forbes' view of the flat tax, which you can file your income tax on a postcard. I, I've been filing my income taxes ever since. I kind of find it the fun fun thing. I use TurboTax online, which in some respects for a simple form is just fine with me. And it's very much more easy to do it using TurboTax online than everything. But it, it can be done with the thing. You get rid of all the loopholes, which would essentially annoy a lot of tax lawyers. Sorry about that. But, uh, but, but again, it's a situation where if normal people can, can understand that they get a standard deduction, that they got to pay a certain amount of taxes. And for example, I taught four years in Kazakhstan. They had a very simple tax code, 10% across the thing for income. That's it. No deductions, whatever, just 10%. So they wanted people to contribute to the infrastructure there. And there's no reason we can't do the same thing. And yes, that'll mean that there's less money to spend in Washington, but that's the whole point if you do that, as well as dismantle the regulation state and essentially tear apart the Department of Education, um, you know, bring the responsibilities back to the state for the EPA and everything else, uh, et cetera, like that. It, it can be done. And, and a lot of the Republican caucus wants to do that, but the Democrats want to have all, more and more Union members or federal AFSCME is, is one of the big patrons for federal workers and such like that. And so, so let's switch to what I think it's all connected. Well, let's switch. It may be a little bit of a shift year, but in terms of it being an important issue, especially in this particular election, you have the economy and you also have immigration. And I know North Carolina is not a border state, so we're not directly dealing with securing the border or anything like that. But it is going to be a topic, especially if you're in Congress, in terms of securing the national border, specifically talking about the southern border. So when I talk about immigration, I break it down into two functions. One, talking about what we do with people that are coming here in terms of how do I handle the people that are coming here. The second aspect of my question is, and I'll deal with it in a minute, is what do we do with the people that are already here? Right? The people that have already crossed and they're already here. So the first component, how do we secure the border? How do What it would be your vision, your plan in terms of securing specifically that southern border? Well, again, it's going back to the Trump plan, and he was pretty successful of doing it. So they're basically, those are just lying and claiming asylum when they really had no basis for it. Um, would just essentially force to stay in Mexico or go home. Uh, that we weren't going to provide things like that, and and basically current law would be enforced. And that that Republicans have wanted ever since they gave Democrats the the benefit of the doubt of making legal all bunch of Im early immigrants, uh, illegal immigrants in the eighties, giving them a period of amnesty to say now they're things, but we have to fix the border problems. 
and they they trusted the good faith of the Democrats that they would allow them to follow through and do the right thing of what this 1986 immigration bill did. And I've been paying enough attention, so I know it was real what President Reagan uh, thinks. But basically, again, it's the politics of bad faith that the Democrats get Republicans to kind of cooperate with them to come up with a thing with all sorts of promises. And yet when they get power, then they decide, oh, no, we're going to push it down to the things and then do this. And part of the problem is that there are a lot of unethical employers that will not force E-Verify and other things, and they want to pay less money. And illegal immigrants can be essentially paid under the table, and essentially they can hold on to their passports or whatever else or get them kicked out if they complain and such. It goes all the way back to sweatshops in New York City as well as other things of essentially using illegal immigrants as slave labor. So it sounds like sounds like you want to fine tune that asylum definition, refugee definition, in terms of it, it's all about enforcing kind of current law to the letter, right? And and that means essentially anybody that they've got really well. And I mean, it's common sense. It does not mean funding NGOs like the Unitarian Universalist Church, of which Ross is a member to essentially set up uh, immigrant farms in, in Central America as well as in Arizona to kind of, uh, you know, make it easier for illegal, to drag illegal immigrants into the country. What a- and and so, so again, i got a story that's interesting too related to this. I was in Robeson County and did a lot of walking around. I, I met some sharecroppers who, who came, who had families in Mexico, they would come up during the harvest seasons legally with a visa. Everything was set up properly. And I think it was even under the Bush administration or even under the Clinton administration. They had a work visa to come here for the things. And then they would send money back home and then they go back and be with their family during the non-harvest season. They made enough money up here to support their family at home. And then they could go back for vacation, do work at home. Okay, in the fields there, whatever they wanted to do, but but he said I I really enjoy doing this. My family has been doing this for a long time. It's something that we enjoy. But when they bring illegal aliens in, in essentially, that get it away from the legal thing, those unethical farmers can pay the others less money, and so there's less security for those doing it legally and such like that. And so and it can be done to do that. But the problem is there are people that want to ignore the law, whether it be E-Verify or other things. And I got I got uh, Deborah Ross on the record where she said she supports enforcement of E-Verify, which is new to me because the old Democratic Party has tried to ignore it for years, which is the law. But again, it, it, it's a requirement. And the Biden administration, DOJ, is going after Musk because he just wants to hire American citizens through security positions to making his rockets. So so it's it's all related to that. It's so in terms of following the law, what would you do with the millions and millions of illegal immigrants that are here now? Not the ones that are looking to come here, but the ones that are here now that have crossed the border and either they came across illegally or as was talked about in the Obama administration, the dreamers, those kids that came over maybe with 
uh, a person that had a visa and the visa expired or they came over legally, but they didn't come on their own. They came with their parents or what have you. What do you do with all of these illegal immigrants that are currently in the United States? There's a wide variety of well, thoughts on that in terms of how you deal with them. What are yours? Well I, well, I put them into two different categories. The truly innocent ones are DACA, Central, else because I met a guy. And you're referring to the dreamers under the Obama. Uh, yeah, that's that's right. But but it's been a problem for years. Their parents come in illegally. They're born here. They're, they're, if you go by them, they, they, or they came as kids. They came as kids. Then they didn't have a choice. They, they're thoroughly educated in, in English. They're not literate. They're not fluent in Spanish or wherever they came from. They've gone to school here. They've gone to college. They have a master's degree. They've shown with their life that they are American citizens and uh, without the name, without the things. They're competent people, whatever else. There should be a way to get them in line to appropriately get get that kind of thing and while the paperwork's being done out that they get approved just to get a green card like everybody else that is not their fault why they were here the rest you just cut them off financially and then and then enforce a verify so essentially anybody that's here, here legally essentially can't get a job and can't provide for their families so most of them will go home and self-deport I was just going to say, it's not really a mass deportation as much as it is a self deportation. Yeah, because they'll go home if they don't have any things, and then they'll, and then the, the appropriate ones will get in line with the rest of those. Because, you know, I taught in Iraq and Kazakhstan, and, and I even sponsored my daughter in law to come over here. There's a real line that's been there for years, and people following the rules or whatever else. And those others should essentially be forced to leave the country and get in line along with everybody else. And, and essentially prove that they have the things, whatever else. There's one thing that they bring up, the Democrats bring up, and even some Republicans, which, yeah, if they want to serve in the military. But I've had Iraqi students that could that could get a visa if they wanted to serve in the in the U.S. military, in the army, and help protect their country, and being part of, you know, the the U.S. Army presence that was in Iraq at the time. That that, that basically there were some that do it because. Iraqi citizens can apply to the uh, military academies, and you know they've been doing it for a long time. Citizens of other countries, and then be and then play a role in helping the U.S. first, and then they go back to be in the, their countries. So that serves as a good it serves as a good transition what you're talking about here. So I'm going to dabble a little bit more in immigration, and then move over to national security. So you've seen a story come out just this past week of the illegal immigrant that came across the border in September of, I think, 2022, comes into New York, commits a crime. They don't deport him there. He ends up disappearing before they can even deal with him. And then he murders a college student down in Athens, Georgia, who was just out for a run. Right. And so this is being played up. Trump has a brand new ad that's out on it. It reminds people a lot of the Willie Horton ad that came out against Dukakis in 1988. But nevertheless, it's a big deal. And so the question is, if an, if an illegal immigrant commits a crime here in the United States, is that something that is an automatic deportation to the other country? Or do you jail away? Well, well, of course it is, because that's the problem with sanctuary cities. Like New York City is a sanctuary city. San Francisco is also. 
is that basically they've set up the rules so that they do not have to form ICE, that we have these people in custody, and they'll essentially let them out. And, and they'll, if they commit murder or theft or whatever else, they'll let them out with no cash bail or whatever else. And so come back in a week or two or whatever. And of course they don't show up and then just move somewhere else. But, but it's a situation where that's again, the Democrats who want open borders and essentially want the ability to essentially employ slave labor because those that are going to want to come and go across open borders, are not going to be the ones that will be here to contribute to society. They're either going to be criminals or people that need desperately need work. Now, what was so? What was tied to the recent immigration bill, the recent border bill that has <laughs> failed uh, at the Senate and was going to be dead on arrival when it arrived yeah. at the House, regardless, was our funding of foreign wars. Right there was there was the whole purse strings for that that you couldn't deal with immigration without dealing with uh, Ukraine and without dealing with Israel. So again. Finally, you know, hoping to be in Congress by January of next year. This is going to be on your docket in terms of what we do with those two wars that are currently going on. So what are your thoughts on our involvement with Ukraine? How involved should we be, if at all? Well, I worked in Kazakhstan for four years, which is on the list of being one of the most corrupt countries in the world other than Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine was at the top. Okay. And any of the monies that went into Ukraine essentially went to feed the oligarchs and other stuff. They were even more corrupt than Russia. And so it's a situation where I've never trusted anybody coming out of things. And the Biden administration, the, through Obama, when he was vice president, was thoroughly involved in the Maidan thing, essentially else, with Newland, uh, the current national security advisor and others trying to overthrow the Russian-friendly government in Ukraine, essentially. But the problem is, yes, there are Nazis in Ukraine who, who, who worked with Adolf Hitler, who also had a, there was a truce between Adolf Hitler and Stalin that they joined, they cut Poland in half, that they both decided we'll both kill the Jews and other minorities we don't like. And, and so after the Soviet Union became a pole, became a, Stalin created Ukraine out of parts of Hungary, Poland, and other things like that. And they've been tearing Poland up for hundreds of years. The kingdom of Poland was usually just bigger, and the Russ would cut off different parts. And so it's, a, and people can look that up themselves. And I, I encourage you to, your listeners to pay attention, watch Tucker Carlson, ask decent questions of Vladimir Putin. His history, based on what I've, my own understanding of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church and the history of the region, is largely accurate. But I grew up in the 70s being entertained by the BS coming out of Radio Moscow and laughing at it because I could easily check and realize it was nonsense. Well, the, the President Putin is a historian. That doesn't mean I love the Russians. No, I don't trust either one of them. But the point is, when Bill Clinton gets $500,000 for a speech in Moscow, okay, and, uh, and Biden, Hunter Biden gets uh, a lot of money from the mayor of Moscow, it's like they're all in it together. And it's like, and the Clinton, Hillary 
was essentially blaming Trump because they were very scared that the Dolan and all the other people, Brookings, who were heavily involved with Moscow and Navalny and all this other nonsense, Navalny was just a puppet being used by the others. The thing, when in reality, he more was the type that would want it to be communist again. And so it's, it, it, it's again, it's all propaganda, and you can't believe anything from them, but that doesn't mean the U.S. has had a history, and this is the history of the U.S. We do not get involved in foreign wars unless Adolf Hitler declares war on us and Japan declares war on us. Then we get involved, and we win, and then we come home. Well, that's not happening in Ukraine, and essentially it's because the Biden administration wants to cover up for its own corruption, the, the Russian oligarchs as well as the Ukrainian Orthodox and the Ukrainian oligarchs as well. So it's connected. So what should we be doing? Should we be funding it? Should no. we providing equipment? What should we be doing, if anything? No, we shouldn't be doing anything because, because if anything, uh, it, if there's a real threat to NATO, that's what President Trump was trying to do is get NATO to defend itself and then we'll back off because it's not our role to 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 essentially help Central Europe deal with its neighbors. So, so particularly because Russia is no longer communist, it is an authoritarian regime, but essentially the whole of the Russian thing is essentially embraced in Russian Orthodox Church. I was in Kazakhstan for four years. I went to a Russian Baptist church. And there's a reason that, that, that Russia is not trying to take over Kazakhstan. It's because Kazakhstan has decided we're going to have Russian, Kazakh, and English be, be our three languages. English is what can unite us and connects us with the outside world. Russian, because we appreciate our Russian speakers. And we're not going to kill them. We're not going to try to kill them and such like that. And the, the Kazakhs are not afraid of the Russians that live in Oskomenogorsk or Petrovladar, which is north of Astana, where I was. I had students who were native language was Russian in my classes there. I had students whose native language was Kazakh in my classes. But they all know English enough to take chemistry with me. And so you get a different perspective there. The problem in Ukraine is essentially the, the Nazis who linger there. And it's, it's tribal warfare, essentially, that's been going on for hundreds of years. The Nazis who were supported the agreement of the Aryan position of the, the uh, Hitler, which comes from the eugenics motion movement, again, that Planned Baronhood is related to in the 20s here in the U.S., the kind of the Hitler kind of embraced parts of the eugenics for the Aryan race stuff. And it's it, it's a situation where where basically that is why Russia has not got into Kazakhstan, which is right on their border too, to defend their Russian speakers because there's no threat. That's, whereas whereas it's not, I had Ukrainian colleagues who were chemistry professors and engineering professors who would tell me about the fact that they were scared to live or work in, in Ukraine because they thought they would be killed because they their native language was Russian. And this was from 2011 to 15 during the Madan thing. And and a lot of people, a lot of Americans do not realize that the, 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 the Nazi guy who was embraced by the Canadian parliament, his people were essentially shelling the Russian speaking areas of Eastern Ukraine. And yeah, 
Russia came in to protect its people. Yes, Ukraine, Crimea was never part of Ukraine. The Tartars and others lived there, whatever else. As I said, it was an artificial construct of Stalin with a bunch of different countries pulled together. And and I knew this even before the interview with thing because I read. I've read since I was a little boy, everything. World Bank Encyclopedia from cover to cover when I was a little boy. But again, it's it's got a thing where when you when you're educated, you can see through the BS and other things like that. And yeah, we should not be involved in 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 tribal warfare in different parts of the world. Well, that's a good segue then in talking about Nazis and and warfare in a different segment of the world, Israel. So, what involvement should we have in this whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict in terms of how Israel's handling Gaza? Uh, how is it Israel's dealing with the Palestinian population to begin with? What involvement, in, if any, should the United States have? Well, the, the Hamas is a terrorist organization supported by Iran, as well as by Qatar and, and other countries that want to essentially divide the region. And, and they firmly believe that they want to wipe Israel off the map from the river to the sea, so to speak, whatever else, and they hide behind civilians. I saw, I worked for a year teaching at the American University of Iraq, Suleimani, which is in Suleimani, Iraq, the Kurdish region, about 200 miles southeast of Mosul. Okay, Mosul was taken over by ISIS during the Obama administration because the Obama administration supported the Muslim Brotherhood and the Muslim Brotherhood had Saddamites and others involved in the in the leadership. Essentially, the Saddamites were originally Stalinists, who essentially wanted to run Iraq with, with Stalin fist and such like that. And so, basically, that that when Saddam Hussein was overthrown in two thousand three by the Bush administration, essentially all his leadership got into a guerrilla warfare and was doing up things, and that's why we went to Iraq in the way to kind of stop that, because we couldn't be certain about WMD, because a lot were being shipped to Syria, where they had them and other stuff like that. The Israelis destroyed a, a nuclear reactor in Syria that was being used to prep nuclear weapons, and a lot of people forget that too. But the thing is, what's going on with ISIS is they hid behind civilians in Mosul, they hid beside the civilians in northern Syria, and that was usually Kurds that they were hiding behind, and they they buried under under hospitals and everything else. Same thing that was going on in Gaza, essentially using the civilians as shields because they don't care about their own people. All they care about is winning, and essentially they see their children as kind of like protecting them from from the West of the, the values they despise. All the little kids are value, inherently valuable, and they don't see it that way. So it's like the only way Israel can can get it do is to essentially force Hamas into a situation where they surrender and give up their arms, and and we've got a responsibility to to help Israel destroy Hamas and Hezbollah. In what form? In what form should the United States be helping? Well, what they're doing now, essentially, but. The Biden administration has been very duplicitous about it. The Trump administration was much more consistent, and it would not have happened under the Trump administration if if the Bidens didn't cheat to, to get the election again. So it's the kind of thing where uh, 
we're, we're, you know, it's no accident that there were no new wars going on during the Trump administration. And in some respects, uh, you know, protecting innocent people against terrorists or what the, this is the transition. And I was there in 2016 when Obama was in there, 2017, okay? Trump comes into office. He, the first thing he does is change the rules of engagement. The rules of engagement under Obama used to be if a terrorist or a Saddamite would, would shell an American facility in Iraq, we were there to protect the innocent civilians and the Kurds and others, then basically we could throw a slingshot back. We couldn't go after them, whatever else. Right when President Trump became president, he changed the rules of engagement to say, we will destroy the places these rockets come. Okay? That was the first thing he did. He, he asked, what can be done to get rid of ISIS? The leadership generals in Washington, D.C. were saying, oh, President Trump is going to take five or six years to kind of get them all out, whatever else. But then he didn't believe them. He did, And he, he does appreciate the military because he went to the New York Military Academy in high school. And so he appreciates the leadership. Yeah, so he gave them a bit of a doubt. But then he went to talk to the people on the ground in the area, colonels and others who were in, in the region, saying, what do we need to do to help to, to get rid of ISIS? And they gave them other advice to say, we can, we can assist the Iraqi army in Kashmirka to drive them out themselves. Well, that's what he gave the orders to do that. Well, during the time I was there, within six months to a year after January of 2017, ISIS was totally destroyed, being the major force of northern Iraq and, and Syria, eastern Syria. Northeastern Syria. And and the CIA, unfortunately, was playing both sides against the middle and essentially blaming the Kurds for essentially ISIS attacking Turkey. And 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 that was when President Trump was trying to move our forces away from the Kurdish regions in Syria. And essentially the 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 CIA and others were essentially saying, oh, no, no, you can't do that. The, the Kurds are attacking. When in reality, it was ISIS all along. And the whole point of what, what Trump was trying to do was get rid of ISIS as a force. And so, yes, the Middle East is, is a different countries, but it's a small region. It all goes back to things. And the thing about Israel is Saddam Hussein used to be one of the major supporters of the Palestinian movements, essentially paying paying for a lifetime salary to the families of anybody that did a suicide bomber and blowing up a bus in Israel. Okay. He was one of the supporters of the PLO and other organizations like that. They had major PLO people in refuge in Baghdad during the things. Okay. So when he was removed, that resource was available. Then Iran took it over for their own reasons. Shiite versus versus uh Shiite versus the other group. Sure. So, so it's all it, it, it's all related, and and the only one who's had a sincere policy going for real peace, bringing the embassy to Israel, to Jerusalem, as well as the Abraham Accords, coming up peace treaties, just like President Carter, God bless him, uh, of having the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, and the border between Egypt and Gaza is is fortified that people would not believe. They got razor wire all over the place. It's like a, 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 a reef that's a craze. And the reef are refining. 
And there's a reason for that. They do not want Palestinian terrorists in, in Egypt fomenting rebellion there either, because they're Stalinists, essentially, who want power at any cost, and that includes being willing to have civilians die. And so, so yes, it's, it's simple in some ways, but complicated in others. And, and the thing is, the Democratic Party has essentially, and I include Deborah Ross in this, that basically in their complicity in, in, in allowing Palestinian people to come into Congress and break the law much worse than any of the J6 people did of disrupting Congress and such like that, saying, river to the sea, river to the sea, and it's okay that they killed millions of thousands of uh, Israeli civilians or whatever else. Uh, and so it, it's like they're stuck with that legacy. And, and so, yeah, the Democratic Party is support of terrorists in Hamas. Well, let's, let's bring it back to the United States then and bring it back specifically to your district. I know this is an issue that's close to your heart in terms of your uh, website and brochures and everything else, and that's it's under the umbrella of health care. But you're talking about you know constitutional protections, specifically that about life. You've mentioned Planned Parenthood a couple times in your comments here. So, what are the biggest issues that you see involving your potential opponent in November if you were to make it through the primaries and Deborah Ross, and how she has handled? those constitutional protections that you reference, specifically life and other aspects? Well, for example, with, uh, with her at her positions, uh, it, it's perfectly consistent with the, with the eugenicist Aryan mind view uh, of, of the thing, that there's a white superior race and that the, the there are inferior races in which they, they, their proclivity to procreate should be diminished. Okay, and that goes to sterilizing the feeble-minded or those girls that decide to be promiscuous in their groups, or killing the unborn because without without essentially encouraging fathers and mothers to have a family to give them something to loop thing up in. In other words, they it. it, it, it it's an argument that essentially destroys any individuality of it. And then they wonder why there's a mental illness problem over with people who have a, have killed their kids, uh, through these things. And so it, it, it's, whether we talk about Hamas and getting rid of Hamas or whatever, it's all about protecting innocent individuals, kids and others, truly protecting them. And the only way to truly protect things is to, go after those terrorists that want to kill them, either hiding behind them some sort of thing, or then pretending they have some sort of moral virtue when, it, when in reality all they want to do is is things. So the thing about the eugenics thing that goes back to the Nazi regime and essentially is going back in the 20s and Margaret Sanger, who essentially had the position that people are welcome to look up Margaret Sanger on the internet and the eugenics movement, that basically they had a three two-pronged approach to provide abortions for those that wanted to kill their children of, of the inferior races because we want less of them around, okay? And, and on the other hand, Down syndrome kids, others who were viewed as a burden of society by those enlightened to know the difference, should be exterminated at early things or sterilized, okay? 
so that they could not have kids and then be a further burden on society. Well, it's Planned Parenthood provides trans drugs to pe- confuse girls to come into their thing saying, I, I wish I was a boy. So they give them testosterone. And then later on, five, four or five years later, and they come to have some common sense and then want to get off it, then they get off it. Then they find out they're sterile. They can never have kids. Well, that was on purpose because it, it, it's, it's just the modern way to get drugs instead of sterilizing kids like they did in the 50s here in North Carolina because in some respects is a sign in downtown things describing the eugenics movement in Raleigh. And it's tragic, but but it's affected minorities in this area for a long time. Now, you've had the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court, and you have an issue now uh, amongst Republicans in particular, but Democrats as well, but Republicans in particular in terms of what to do with that Dobbs decision. You've had a couple uh, people within the movement say the federal government should set a weekly a, a week bank, you know, whether it be at 12 weeks or 16 weeks or 20 weeks. You have other Republicans who say, no, the Dobbs decision means leave it for states. So let's get the federal government completely out of this, leave it up to the states. And whether it's the states like it was here in North Carolina, where the legislature makes up a decision regarding it, or like what you saw in Ohio, where the people did in terms of a referendum, and they made a decision on their own in terms of well, not they were going to opt. Well, that'd be that. And so, well, get your position on that. Should the federal government be involved? in that decision when it comes to abortion, or should it be left up to the states? No, it should be left up to the states, and that's all it did, is it sent all the regulation back to the states. And I go back to my original reason for getting involved in the white politics in the first place, is because Patsy Mink helped set up the allow abortions in Hawaii when it was illegal in the mainland during the 60s to essentially have go to, vaca- go to Hawaii on vacation, kill your kid while you're there. Of course, they put another label on it, but that was essentially what it was. Well, that's been the case all along. And and I've had a book, you know, I, I've had relatives in my family who had abortions growing up as part of the 60s. I'm part of the 70s generation, whatever else. I saw this happen. I saw how it affected my mother when her grandchildren were killed, essentially. It tore her apart. But that was the morality she sent up in our family to be acceptable with that kind of cavalier view of, of human life. And so it's a situation where regulation of the state is appropriate because I don't, uh, I don't know of any time in American history where, where the um, mother who went through an abortion procedure has ever been prosecuted for it. And yet the, the criminal doctors like Gosnell in Philadelphia I highly recommend anybody to see the movie Gosnell, which came out, which described this butcher who was black, who had almost all black patients, who essentially botched abortions again and again that ended up killing the mothers as well as the children, having children that were born alive that were allowed to starve and die on the table and other stuff like that. It, it's a, it happened in Philadelphia, and I grew up near Philadelphia and going on when I was growing up there. And because this went on for over 40 years and it's, it's a real tragedy, but it's a situation where the kids are things. One of the things that have been brought up when I've gotten into discussions with people, well, what about situations of rape and incest? Well, in the U S we used to have laws against rape and incest where the person would be executed for it. 
it's never a solution to execute an innocent baby that results from it. Sure, execute the rapist that does the raping that makes a girl pregnant. But but when you when you address it that way, it becomes starkly clear because then then it has to be proven that that person deliberately raped the girl. When in reality, a girl going drunk at a frat party, you know, decides to have sex with the guy, she gets pregnant, and then claims it's raped later. And and that's the part of the Me Too movement, what they set up for themselves, is it's like it blurs the lines to make it things. And, and yeah, it's just, why penalize the child? Why kill the child the results? Because the father usually has no say in it at all. And unfortunately, the girl is often manipulated into it, thinking the things, and then she wonders why she has mental problems afterwards. So you're in a situation here where you're running in a Republican primary, Obviously, voting goes through March 5th, as I mentioned earlier. And you've got, in North Carolina, you've got a situation where unaffiliated voters can vote in the Republican primary. They can ask for a short ballot and they can vote in it. So it's not just registered Republicans that are voting. And to win that district, seemingly you have to secure some of those votes because the unaffiliated voters are the largest political bloc Right. In Wake County and in North Carolina, just in general. So how do you balance that when you're running a campaign where you're trying to cater to a base, but you're also trying to cater maybe more so to moderate Republicans and unaffiliated or independent voters as well in order to get enough votes to get out of the primary and get to the general election against Deborah Ross? How do you, how do you balance that in your campaign? Well, well, basically, I balance it with the fruit of self-interest in some respects about the fact that that many unaffiliateds, particularly those in Wake County, are are more classic Republicans that are fed up with the liberal Republicans that have been that have been a pox ever since I got involved in politics from the beginning. Because I told you earlier the story about meeting John McCain's wife and such like that. In nineteen ninety eight, when I heard that John McCain was coming to Honolulu, whatever else, I thought, it, oh, it would be cool to meet him. But then I heard through the thing that he, because I was going after his war buddy, Danny, uh, he called me an a-hole. So it's like that gave me a whole perspective on the nature of part of the problem in politics in general is the fact that I thought the guy would like me because we, we were hospitable to his wife and his family, but he was much more concerned about his corrupt Democrat colleague in the Senate. What do you think? So, 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 so b- b- my point is bigger than that. My point is that there are a lot of disaffected Republicans that have gone unaffiliated because they're fed up with the Republican establishment. That's why the RNC is switching leadership. Okay. That's why it's been starved for funds and such like that, because essentially they've left, they've left the grassroots behind that Trump has kind of uh, got involved involved in, in his thing. There are a lot of Democrats who are no longer like to be considered Democrats because they're pro-life or other stuff, so they've dropped the things. But they're not they're not getting ready yet to go on to be Republicans. Like a lot of people I met in Robeson County who used to be standard Democrats who were fed up with the pro-death positions of their party, and so they decide to either become unaffiliated or Republicans in Robeson County. Well, I'm telling you about Christians who are Native Americans. Let me ask you this. You said that you think there's a lot of independents or unaffiliated voters who feel disaffected by the Republican 
establishment. But it's but it, there's no doubt that Donald Trump runs the Republican Party at this point. I mean, he's not going to lose a single state when it comes to primary. The party is his. So well, it's because they, because he's earned the support because his positions in some respects he has a record of bringing peace in the Middle East. Well, is this economic prosperity that that is no longer around because the Biden administration essentially countermanded everything when they came into office. My question is this, though. If, if it were true that there are a bunch of right-leaning Republicans who have now feel disaffected and they've become uh, unaffiliated or independents, you would think that they would, especially for this election, be registering back as Republicans because Trump's the head of the ticket at this point. Well, they don't have to, they don't have to because they can request the, the Republican ballot. Sure. And and I understand that kind of thing. But see, you got to understand why I'm not one of them. The reason I'm not one of them is because I love the Republican platform and what is stand in contrast to the Democratic, the demonic one of which the Democrat platform is. And I encourage everybody to read it. But unfortunately, there are a lot of rhinos. And, and, and there have been many more decades ago they're slowly dying off, but they're still there who don't really believe in the Republican platform. They've tried to change it or whatever, but don't have the things, but they still work behind the scenes to undermine it. And and, and, and and a lot of people get fed up with that because they don't want to have those kind of internecine battles. They just get frustrated with the internecine battles, which essentially, instead of going after the real enemy, they just fight amongst themselves and they just... I, they have better things to do than get involved in and then, local Republican politics. And that's why I've chosen myself to stay out of local things. As far as I know, I've got friends on both sides of the uh, of the establishment Republicans and non-established Republicans. I, I haven't made any moves on either side because I've been going after Deborah Ross. I haven't taken sides on the leadership of the Wake GOP for example. Well, that, that's kind of to the crux of my question. Are you running a campaign, and it may not be as necessary in the primaries. It certainly will be in the general election if you get out of the primary when you are running against Deborah Ross. Is you're going to need those rhinos, and you're going to need those unaffiliated voters, and maybe the and, and by unaffiliated, I'm talking about the ones that don't like Trump. Maybe they, maybe they like Republican policies, but they don't like Trump. Well, so how do you balance? Well, that? I see it being a chemistry professor. That when I was teaching chemistry, my job was to grade exams based on how they did on the paper, not based on whether they liked me or not, but to grade everybody with the same standard. Well, my view of representative government is if a Democrat, I'm not going to ask them when they come into my office asking for help. If I could help them, I will, I will try and ask my the office to help them regarding their issue interfacing with the federal government. I will pay attention to their thing. I will say, if you got a proposal, please write it up for me and get, provide references that are reputable to, to show you that. And then I will take it to the caucus or the committee and say, this is a reasonable thing we could we should consider. And it's gotten, it, it'll be cross-partisan lines. The problem is in the second district, one of the things is that the only constituents Deborah Ross and her people have are her own agenda-driven leftist political groups. One of the weirdest things we saw in Hawaii was we went to scripted house hearings on the big island of Hawaii, where there'd be a whole bunch of native Hawaiians wanting to speak and whatever else. But the only people allowed to speak were the, were the bureaucracy people who were given time to speak 
but there was no questions asked of the people who came for this public hearing for Congress, public hearing to Hawaii. Okay, so it's a, it's a game with them. They, they give the pretense of wanting to help all constituents, where in reality they will only really assist those or they'll slow walk the other ones. Whereas my view, and this is, I think, in general, the Republican view, I think, is true representative government. Well, I would see it as my job to advocate for anyone, libertarian, Republican, Democrat, who has a legitimate issue with the federal government to see what I can do regarding helping their family member get a visa to come visit the U.S. or to to go to another country or some other thing that would have some sort of regula- regulation that they would do. It would be my job. But unfortunately, the Democrats have become so partisan they won't assist anybody who doesn't contribute to their campaigns or whatever else. So I, so I see that as being cross things because I've talked to a lot of independents myself who, who basically have called up Devin Ross's office and they won't give them the time of day. So I'm an attorney, as you've mentioned before, if I'm making an argument, uh, whether it's in a brief or I'm making it in front of the judge or making it in front of the jury, I want to close it. I have a closing argument that says, this is why you should support my side and not that of my opponent. So I'm giving you the opportunity here at the end. So in a, in a two, three minute snippet, it we a a position, an argument to the listeners on this podcast, and then we'll listen uh, and maybe hear you uh, outside of the podcast as why they should vote for you either today, tomorrow, or anytime up till March 5th in this primary. Why should they vote for you as as your? Well, I believe I'm really the only one who has a history of true public service of wanting to help individuals, students, chemistry students, or whatever else to thrive and do well in life to excel to go forward. Um, I appreciate the service of my opponents, whatever level they are at, okay? I appreciate the years of public service that that Colonel Swain has had in our armed services and serving serving our, our the American people in his own way, which I appreciate very much, okay? Um, I, I have my own set of credentials of over 30 years teaching chemistry from going all the way back to 1979, where I started as a teaching assistant in North Dakota State University, where I had chemistry labs that I was responsible for. So, and even working as a chemist, trying to improve life and, and do develop products and such like that. So it's a situation where I, there's nothing political about all of that other than the typical academic policy. But I always viewed it as I was hired to teach chemistry in Kazakhstan. I was not hired there to be a busybody and trying to change the government. Okay, If I go to Congress, my job will to be represent people in this district, irrespective of what their party line is or whatever else. Even those that might be more liberal, that they'll get a decent hearing from me and at least I'll be able to listen to their other side. And, and say if they give me a good enough argument, then yeah, I'll take it seriously. But the, the, the dynamics that goes on between the Democrats and the Republicans in the House now it, it is, is the, the Democrats' attitude of, yeah, we'll cooperate with you as long as you eventually come out to agree with us. And, that, and that's, not, that's not conducive to real change. But if you're a constitutionalist as I am, you got to realize that in some respects, the federal government was designed to have the Congress 
essentially uh, only make things based on real consensus. The rest, they would be unsuccessful at really doing anything. And, and, and that means requires a smaller government. And so that I, I would do. But I, I believe in a rep we are in a representative republic and it is not a, our, our country is not a democracy the way the Democrats want to pretend it is, particularly when the Democrats view a democracy as a socialist one where, where everybody has to be silenced who disagrees with them. So, so that's the difference between, I think, me and my prime opponent, and I do not see my other primary opponents as being enemies in any respect. I think they both offer their own set of skills or not. So, Fair enough, Gene. I appreciate you being on. Once again, just remind the listeners where they can find information about you on the web. Well, I, I, I have a Facebook page. It's Gene Douglas for Congress. NC number two. Uh, I, I have Twitter. It's EF Douglas, my personal one, as well as EFD for Congress um, there, which I post some things there too. I have the Substack, which is directed towards G Douglas, two S's dot US. Um, and basically, if, 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 if they're really interested, they could find, find it out. But, I, and I was even in the newspaper, but but thankfully, I was not endorsed by the News and Observer, but I've never been endorsed by a liberal newspaper in all my things. So I see that as a badge of honor. So, uh, but even they were fair enough to put in my full answers to their questions as part of their, um, their uh, question and answers for, for the candidates that they gave us. So I do have some page on there where they lay out everything. But 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 again, I I view that. Uh, and one thing I didn't mention, one thing I didn't mention that I think is important to mention, is that uh, that I believe regarding the federal government role that the only way that could be done is with the Human Life Amendment. But that would require three three quarters of states and both the House and the Senate to have two thirds, and that's not going to happen within the next decades. So the best we could do is get state regulation and that if people want to live, live in a state like California and New York that has free abortion rights, fine, they could move there. I'm just very thankful that North Carolina came up with a reasonable alternative so that at least babies over 12 weeks old are not just exterminated at the selfish whim of the mother. Well, Gene, I appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you coming on the pod and giving listeners an opportunity to hear from you and hear your platform and hear your thoughts on the issues. I appreciate you joining me. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And I would appreciate the votes of anybody that wants to assist my campaign. But I lean it God's hands that, that I'm very happy that if, if Colonel Swain wins the primary, I will be happily supportive of him going forward. But he did it before in 2020 and didn't do very well. So I think we may need someone new to take on Deborah. So. Well, we'll keep an eye on it as the uh, days go by here. And we are in the final week, as I said before, early voting is going on through March 2nd. And we have the primary vote or primary day going on on March 5th. So we'll know more by then. I'll continue to interview some candidates from various districts leading up to that point. But until then, this has been The Middle American. <laughs>